Father, we praise you for your incredible plan. No one understood it, even, the, even your enemies, even the devil himself didn't understand what your plan was. And we thank and praise you that your plan exceeded anything that could have been imagined, that it was born and birthed in the heart of God to redeem your creation, to restore relationship, to bring power, bring the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we can live empowered and in freedom. And we will never be silenced on this message. We thank and praise you for that message. Father, I pray for those this morning that need to, need to hear right now. They need to hear that there's power, there's encouragement. I pray, God, that you would encourage people this morning that need encouragement, that you would replace sorrow with joy. God, people that are going through tough times, that they, you would remind them of your power, and they would look at you, not their circumstances. And God, that you would just give us vict victory today, that we'd be winning because of what Jesus has done. And we just pray now, Lord, as we've been in your presence and come into your presence by worshiping you, that you would now take the living word of God and you would transform our lives because your word changes our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Almost 2,000 years ago, there was a small group of people who believed in and followed a man called Jesus. They expressed their love and devotion by giving up their homes and jobs, leaving their families and their careers to follow this traveling teacher. For three years, they participated in Jesus' teaching and healing ministry, constantly on the go, rubbing shoulders with the mass of humanity. Then something happened. Overnight, everything changed. Their dreams turned into nightmares. Their worst fears could not match what had happened. Their loving, kind, compassionate teacher had been arrested, put on trial, and sentenced to death all in one day's time. It seemed as if everything had spun out of control. What was God doing? Where was God anyway? Is there a God? These followers only knew what they could see and what they could touch. They were no different than you or me. They had found someone they trusted, someone they believed in, someone that had earned their followership. But now, he was gone. These people were shaken to the very core. They experienced an incredible loss. And now they were asking tough questions, questions that no one seemed to be able to answer. Why? Why? I want to join two of those people, two men or a man and a woman, we're not sure. They were walking on a road asking tough questions on the day of the resurrection when Jesus showed up. Let's join them. I'd like us to join them as we look to, at Luke 24. I read the resurrection story. The next part of chapter 24, 
starting with verse 13. You can find it on page 859, 859 in the Bible in the rack in front of you, or it'll be on the projection behind me. Verse 13, now that same day, two of them are going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. This was the day of resurrection. And there are a lot of ways that we can identify with these two people. And I want to look at five ways that we can identify with these two. We're going to look at five facts from the road. Five facts from the road. First fact is that each of us are on a journey. Each of us are on a journey. These two were on a road outside Jerusalem heading towards a village called Emmaus. It was about a seven-mile walk. And first of all, this, this journey was a, it was a physical journey. They were simply going from point A to point B. They had a destination. It was just a walk. All of us also are, are on a road somewhere. It's, a, it's the physical part of our journey, moving from point A to point B to somewhere. Sometimes we don't know where, but we're going somewhere. All of our paths are different. We're all on a road. All our paths are different. If you look at your past, where you started, where you came from, your background and heritage, where you were born and raised, where you went to school, the jobs you've held, the relationships you've had, maybe marriage, children, grandchildren. Your, your path, your physical journey is probably unique. Maybe nothing exactly remarkable, but it's unique. And then you move forward into the present to today. Where are you today? What does your life consist of? You, as all of us, live in a physical world with a physical existence. And we also look toward the future as we're walking on this road. There's a future. Where do we plan to go from here? What do you plan to do? Who do you plan to become? The physical part of the journey, or this road, is the easiest to identify. What we can see, what we can touch, the things we remember. And just like the two on the road to Emmaus, we can tell pretty much where we've been, where we are, and and where we're going. But there's another dimension to our journey. It's a far more important one than just our physical journey. It's the spiritual journey. The spiritual journey. Jesus had come to reveal God. He had come to help people establish a relationship with God. It was Jesus who put people on a spiritual journey. On a spiritual journey. 
This was a lifetime of getting to know this previously unknown God. He was the invisible, the ethereal, this abstract power. A previously unknown person now being made known personally because Jesus gave God a face. Jesus gave God a face. And through Jesus, God became knowable to to everyone. The significance we cannot underestimate. Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. If you have seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. He says, I and my Father are one. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And they had experienced that relationship and beginning to understand it. Now, Jesus was God. Or was he? Or was he? In the same way, we are also on a spiritual journey. As beings with body and soul and spirit, we have more than just a physical body. We live more than just a physical dimension. Most of us could be described as spiritually seeking people, spiritually sensitive people, looking for meaning in life that goes beyond just the observable, the quantifiable, and the physical. Like these two on the road, we experience similar feelings, hopes and dreams shattered, plans destroyed, sudden changes that throw us into turmoil. Like the pandemic interrupting our plans, for school, for vacations, family get-togethers, holidays, financial hopes and dreams and unemployment, all kinds of things. Expectations ending somehow. Or maybe just a lost sense of direction, a vague sense of emptiness or a sense of purposelessness. Something we counted on is gone. Well, our physical journey and our spiritual journey are intertwined together. And we experience many different things on those roads in journey. Each of us are on a journey. Well, while on this journey, and we're all in different places, while on this journey, sooner or later, number two, Jesus shows up. Sooner or later, Jesus shows up. He intersects with us. At some point in our life, we are confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. He joins our road, sometimes unexpectedly, maybe not recognized, but he joins us on our road. Some of us came into contact with Jesus years ago. Maybe you learned about Jesus and got to know Jesus in a Sunday school class as a child. Maybe a grandparent talked about Jesus or read Bible stories to you. Maybe it was as a teenager that you met Jesus and, of course, back then seemed to have a lot more faith. Or more recently, Jesus may have placed himself in your path with a conversation, with an event, or a movie, or today, maybe the first time in many years or months that you've thought about this person, Jesus. Typically, there are two questions. Jesus asks them two questions. He says, what are you discussing? And then he says, what things are you talking about? The first question has to do with the question of recognition. Do we recognize that God is intersecting or do we recognize that God is speaking to us? Trying to get our attention. Do we recognize? Jesus may show up in our life speaking through circumstances, a new awareness of emptiness or need, a lack of direction. It might be a need we have. God speaks to us. Jesus speaks to us. 
For some, everything is going so well. Maybe Jesus has something to do with your success. For others, Jesus gets our attention through life circumstances. It's a positive thing like you just had a baby. And there's this joy about having the new baby. Or maybe there was a near-miss accident or an accident. And, and you say, what, what is going on here? It gets our attention. Maybe Jesus shows up at those quiet times of solitude. Up early in the morning, watching the sunrise, sitting on your deck with a cup of coffee. On the top of a hiking trail, overlooking the mountains. Or camping in the wilderness, looking up at the stars at night. Sitting on the beach, watching the ocean waves come in. And God gently speaks to you of his love and his reality. The fact that God's real. Jesus intersects with us. He speaks to us. He shows up sometimes in the most unusual places, in the most unusual circumstances. He says there's more to life than we're experiencing. Do we recognize him? Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Maybe Jesus has been speaking to you through another human being, a friend, a family member, an acquaintance. And many times, like the two in our story, we fail to recognize that it's Jesus speaking. Or we don't, just don't recognize him. And the second question of Jesus has to do with something called expectations. Expectations. What do we expect? We all view truth through our own experience, which is subjective. Subjective. And the two people in our story said, these were our expectations. We are following this, this great religious leader. Our religious leaders had him executed. He was supposed to be our political savior, our redeemer. He was supposed to take over, kick out the occupying Romans, and set up this Jewish state. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. They thought. Expectations. What are your expectations of God? What are your expectations of God? We all have expectations of God or about life. We have great expectations when we're young and in our school years and we graduate from high school and you talk about what the future is and most likely to succeed and you think about all that. Then you come back to your 20th reunion, not some, oh, whatever. Graduate school, college expectations, our first job expectations, marriage, career, children, the empty nest, grandchildren, retirement. We all have expectations of life. We all have expectations of God. And these two had expectations, like we do. But God, God had a different plan. God had a different plan. It was a better plan. It was going to cost. It was going to cost. But the key is that he was going to pay the price. The third fact from the road is Jesus reveals God's plan. Jesus reveals God's plan. In verses 25 to 27, the next two verses in our text, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what he said in all the scriptures concerning him. What is that all about? 
What was that about? Well, the Apostle Paul sums it up very nicely in the, in the book of Acts, Acts 13. And I put this in the New Living Translation to help us make sense of it. Paul says to the Jewish people in a sermon, he says this, Brothers, you sons of Abraham and also all you devout Gentiles who fear the God of Israel, this salvation is for us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders fulfilled prophecy by condemning Jesus to death. They didn't recognize him or realize that he is the one the prophets had written about, though they hear the prophet's words read every Sabbath. They found no cause to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had fulfilled all the prophecies concerning his death, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared over a period of many days to those who were gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are his witnesses to the people of Israel. Brothers, listen, Paul said. In this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is freed from all guilt and declared right with God. Something the Jewish law could never do. said, God had a better plan. That was the plan that was called the passion of the Christ. It's God's plan. These two people on the road to Emmaus thought they knew what God's plan was, and they certainly knew what he should do, but God had a different idea. It involved the sacrifice of God. The sacrifice of God. We ask, what's the cost? What, what did it cost Back in the days of the Great Depression, a Missouri man named John Griffith was the controller of a great railroad drawbridge that went across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, to work. At noon, John put the bridge up to allow ships to pass, and he sat out on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. Time passed quickly. Suddenly, he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed it was 1.07. The Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board, was roaring towards this raised bridge. He leaped from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. Just before throwing the master switch, he glanced down to see if there were any ships below under the bridge. And there, a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to pound in his throat. His son, Greg, had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the massive gears that operated the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. For one agonizing moment, an eternity as time stood still, John froze at the controls. He knew his choices. He could save his son, his only son, or he could lower the bridge, crushing the life out of his son, saving the lives of 400 people he didn't even know. In an instant, the man's mind flashed back to significant events, the birth of his son, taking care of his son when he was sick, his son running to him, saying, hi, Dad, when he got back from work. All of these things went through his, his thing. And again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked in the air. John could now hear the clicking of locomotive wheels on the tracks. The old man's love was greater than that for just his son. 
greater than his love for his family, greater than his love for himself. His love prevailed. His mind was made up. With tears streaming down his face, he threw the switch that would bring the bridge down, saving the lives of 400 people, but crushing the life out of his son. The sound of the train clattering across the bridge drowned out his son's screams as the father turned his back and sobbed uncontrollably. And the train? The people on the train? In the passing windows, the father saw businessmen casually reading their afternoon newspapers, finely dressed ladies sipping tea in the dining car, children pushing long spoons into their dishes of ice cream, they all went home to crackling fires and warm beds and families and home-cooked meals as if nothing had happened. There stands the cost. Our God, our Father, gave his only son. He turned his back on him when he was dying. The difference was the son knew and he readily gave up his life of his own volition, knowing that he was going to die. That was God's plan. Jesus would die so we could live. That was his plan. That's what God did. Jesus came to pay the price for us. I want to give an illustration If we look at this illustration, we find that we have us and God. God wants to have a relationship with us, but because we've rebelled against God and broken off relationship, there's a separation, there's a chasm between us and God. And to most of us, to varying degrees, we're aware of our distance from God, so we do things like being a helpful neighbor, pay our taxes, go to church, give money. In order to get back to him, we do things to try to reach back to God. But the, the Bible says all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And besides, the sins we've committed must be punished, and the penalty we owe is death. So there's death. That's what we owe. It, it, it's physical separation and spiritual separation from God. And it looks bleak when you look at that picture. But the good news is that we matter to God. He loved us so much that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He provided a bridge over which we can find this forgiveness and restore that relationship. And then he canceled out, paid our debt with his death. It's not enough to just know this, because many of us know this part of the story. We have to act on it, admitting we've rebelled against God, and we want his forgiveness and leadership. Then we can take steps to cross over into that relationship with God. What's the cost? What was the cost? Jesus, he said, had to suffer these things. That cross had to happen for us. John three sixteen, verse a lot of us know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This 
is God's plan. That's, that's God's plan. The people on the road to Emmaus, the two on the road, didn't, didn't have a clue. We do. We know this is true. Now, how do we know this is true? Because of Easter. Because of Easter. The fourth fact from the road is that Jesus' resurrection validates, validates his claims. Jesus' resurrection validates his claims. The last part of Luke 24 says, verse 28, it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, it is true the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus was raised from the dead and proved he is God, that his sacrifice was accepted by God, and that he, he lives today. He's alive today. You can visit the tombs of the founders of every major religion. Name any religion in the world, any major religion, and you can visit the tomb of every one of those who founded that religion. The fact that they are dead and buried and still there makes no difference. Doesn't make any difference. Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, Muhammad, the Muslim religion, makes no difference. Jesus' tomb is empty. All religions are not the same. Christianity rises or falls on the fact of the resurrection. And many witnesses saw him Many died the death of martyrs, claiming he was alive. The two people in our story had their eyes open. They suddenly recognized Jesus. They saw the truth in an instant. Just, they saw the truth. The fifth fact from the road is truth calls for a response. Truth calls for a response. There are only two choices when confronted by truth. And in this story, as we identify, we're all on this journey. Jesus shows up. Jesus reveals God's plan. Jesus' resurrection validates his claims. But the question is, what is our response? Belief or unbelief? Belief or unbelief? Unbelief is a rejection of the truth presented. The claims of Jesus, the, that God's plan to save us. It's a reliance on ourselves for our eternal destiny or destination. Belief, on the other hand, is an acceptance of truth. The claims of Jesus that this is God's plan to save us, and it's a reliance on God, not ourselves, for our eternal destiny or destination. Belief calls for action. Unbelief is also an action. Belief is placing our trust in Jesus, accepting that he is God, accepting that he died for my sins personally and accepting his sacrifice for my sins. Belief is more than 
intellectual assent to a set of propositions. It's an action of placing our trust in a person. Let me repeat that. Very important. Belief is more than an intellectual assent to a set of propositions. It is an action of placing our trust in a person. Jesus, the Son of God. So what's the cost? What's the cost? It cost Jesus his life. What's the cost for me and you? Nothing. It's already paid for. All there is for me and you to do is accept it as a free gift. The price was paid by Jesus. If I try to pay for a gift, it's no longer a gift. I don't know where you are today in your spiritual journey because we're all on a spiritual journey as well. God knows. And God wants to give you his gift of Jesus for eternal life. It says in 1 John 5, 11 to 13, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son, Jesus, has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know. That is the ultimate message of Easter, the good news, that we know we can live forever because Jesus died and came back to life again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us life. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we consider this life for each and every one of us, that you, Father, would speak to our hearts about why that you died. The cost was your blood. It was your life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.